0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey.
1: Your journey. Your Your journey. journey, Your journey starts here. here. Welcome
2: you all to Poetry and Conversation and thank you for coming. Tonight um, we're really thrilled to have Jennifer Chang and Jenny Johnson to read for us. They're each gonna read for a little while, then we'll have a little Q&A at the table, and then they'll read some closing poems. And I'm just gonna begin by introducing Jennifer Chang. Jennifer Chang is the author of The History of Anonymity and Some Say the Lark, which was long listed for the Penn Open Book Award and which won the William Carlos Williams Award for 2018. Her poems have appeared in numerous journals, including American Poetry Review, Boston Review, The Nation Poetry, and A Public Space, and she has published essays on poetry and poetics in the Los Angeles Review of Books, New England Review, and The Volta. She co-chairs the advisory board of Kundiman, an organization that supports Asian American writers, and she teaches creative writing and literature at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Jennifer Chang writes in one of her poems, The best walking is without reason, formless, scattering the self into thinking, more winter. Although her own emotionally precise and richly musical poems could never be described as formless, they do resemble the best walking in their effect, freeing up our thinking. With every question they raise, every memory they pursue, every piece of the landscape they light on, They draw us deeper into a world that is absorbing and strange. To attempt to name something in this world is to stumble into error, every word testing what's real, as she says, only to fail. And to love someone in this place of scattered selves is to find that person receding, leaving us lonely. To master love, she writes, is to be devastated by it. From these failures and distances, the poet weaves beauty, as here. In Nebraska, I chased a brown bird, so quiet, I never learned her name. Her poems, like The Brown Bird, are exquisite mysteries. Please help me to welcome Jennifer Chang. Thank you
0: so much, so. That's so, so perceptive. Um, can you hear me? My water is like, sliding down. <laughs> Should I get closer? Mm-hmm. Okay, close. Okay. Oh, just good. Oh, yeah. I can get closer. Okay. Um, I'll be reading poems from my recent book, Some Say the Lark. Um, and I don't have a lot to say about each poem, I I don't think, Um, so I'll just just move through. Uh, Thanks so much for coming. The Winter's Wife. It will be years before I understand failure, the sun's last rage in the winter trees. My yard is a failure of field, it is small and poorly tended. Years before this hard kernel of worry rises to a truer height, I can learn to make shade with my palms, but I cannot learn to unmoor my want. I want wild roots to prosper, an invention of blooms, each unknown to every wise gardener. If I could be a color, if I could be a question of tender regard, I know crabgrass and thistle. I know one algorithm. It has nothing to do with repetition or rhythm. It is a route from number to number, less to more, more to less. A map drawn by proof, not faith. Unlike Twilight, I do not conclude with darkness. I conclude. So I forgot to say that I'm really delighted to be here um, in Baltimore, and especially reading with my dear, mm-hmm. dear friend Jenny Johnson, um, without whom I couldn't have written this book. I, her hand is literally in every poem. You know, she's crossed out all the bad words, so <laughs> fixed my commas. Um, so this next poem comes from the place where we met, Charlottesville, Virginia, um, and I was asked to write a poem about. Thomas Jefferson and Monticello um, which I didn't want to do. Uh, we both were U- we both are UVA alums um, and I think we both have uh, you know problematic issues with our relationship with that school, um, not least for its history of, of power. Um, so this poem is kind of about that. It's also kind of about um, a horse. I met a real live horse, and some of the horses here are real, some of them are not real, some of them belong to Jefferson, some of them did not. And one reason I, I kind of my imagination focused on the horse was because when I was researching um, Jefferson and Dodson State of Virginia for another purpose, I discovered that he took better, uh, took better records of his horses than he did of his slaves. Um, and it's actually the first poem in the book. A Horse Named Never. At the stables, each stall was labeled with a name. Biscuit stood aloof. I faced always, invariably, his clockwork tail. Crab knew the Sotlick too well. Trapezoid mastered stillness, a midnight mare. She was sternest and tallest. Her chest stretched against the edges of her stall. I was not afraid of Never, the chestnut gelding, so rode his iron haunches as far as Panther Gap. Never and I lived in Virginia then. We could neither flee nor be kept. Seldom did I reach the little mountain without him, the easy crest making valleys of indifferent grasses. What was that low sound I heard, alone with Never? a lone horse, a lodestar, a habit of fear. We think of a horse less as a history of one man and his sorrows than as a history of a whole evil time. I fed him odd lettuce, abundant bitterness, who wore the bit and harness, who was the ready steed. Or I think there be six nevers in the field, He took the carrot, words by my own reckoning, an account of creeks and oyster catchers. I named my account Notes on the State of Virginia. It was bred for show and not to race. Never, I cried, never. Were I more horse than rider, I would better understand the beast I am. Our hoof house rested at the foot of the mountain, on which rested another house, more brazen than statuary. Let it be known, I first mistook gelding for gilding. I am the fool that has faith in never. Somewhere a gold door, burdened with apology, refuses all mint from the yard. How to Live in an American Town. I woke early to find the dog once again, sleeping alone in the front room. He dreams what I dream, blue-eyed children, somehow mine, somehow upright as the summer grass, taller than this rain. I have never had a dream come true. No, not true. There was a one about you, the one where the kitchen catches fire and you are the only one who knows not to pour water on the flame. And the fire was like my dream children and everyone is standing quite tall, our heads brushing against a low cumulus cloud, submitting ourselves to the blind craft of terror. I've been unkind to strangers, unkind to you. I did not thank you about the fire, which to this day still scorches. This is true. I opened the door and bargained with the dog. If you run, I'll relinquish the dream to you. You love the field, the blue eyes. What do I love? I love the dog. I love an empty room. I want to love more than I know. I'd like to never know the dog dying, that he will die, that I don't know, that I don't know he's dead now, because I'm listening to the rain. So run with him, please. Take the kitchen fire. Run, heart, run. You'll hear me crying at the threshold. Run as far as Duluth, Helena, Lone Pine, California. Run farther to a town like this one, but without all the lousy rain. I hear grief burns faster there. So there's a series of poems throughout the book about a friendship. Um, I'm not gonna read all of them, uh, but It's a friendship from childhood between another child of immigrants um, in the suburbs of New Jersey where I'm from. Um, And I think that's all you need to know. And this is a, a bit of a longer poem. It wanders. Lost child. It is possible I've written all I can about her. My friend, who once saw my coldness, young as we were, as might. Wordless, slow, I watched her reach the green apex, our forest unfolding a bolder spring, then nodded at her victory. She won the race. I did not care. Poor at math, wasteful of time, those lush, arrogant clouds. I grazed lawns, wrote homes. It is possible ours was a friendship a convenience. Neighbors two daughters of immigrants we found each other circling cul-de-sacs in afternoons easy drag. Our bicycle wheels lulled, dulled by idle lulling. What do I care now that she's dying or about to die? Dark haired, grave eyed, she was almost beautiful. What's a fish without an eye? Fish a joke she'd tell past 18, as if joking were the joke, words to her, an affect of breath, distractions apportioning the hour's tedious orbit. I don't remember laughing, or I did laugh, because I did love her, for giving me time to breathe, to be, and feel all that I was not feeling, you know, that suburban psychosis, sad. I was a child so lost I froze whenever she wept, posing like pre-adolescent topiary. Tireless, another dud hedge stalling on the lawn. Worse, I tell the joke back to her. What's a fish? Forgetting the crucial ocular, the self. My closet hid a packed bag. I swore I'd run away, then didn't. I'd avoid phone calls, fib my RSVP. I was busy and busy, will always be busy. Perhaps this mirror can be comfort now, my face vacant, wondering who she is to me, more time wasted on the unknowable sky, which is just an image of the future. Fear lights my eyes and I blink, a self-enforced detachment that self-soothes. I was lonely, had no one to sit on the bus or eat lunch with, and even then knew I'd fail at the most basic things. D plus in human physiology, a first marriage I didn't intend, ordinary confessions pouring out as soon as my lips kissed a cold rim of gin. I stole my sister's gold woolen capelet, I never loved him. The truth is I learned nothing from her kindness, and so confessing now is folly when aging imposes new precision. Our sons grow taller, our thoughts bleaker. If the diagnosis surprised her, I'll never know, and that might be the end of it, if any end could be tolerable, imaginable. I have no right to this poem, this life, insufficient with gratitude, the unceasing toll of tides outside my mind's window. I have no right to see an end. Outside the real window, a neighbor I've never spoken to, frees brambles of branches knotted since winter from a rose shrub. Though all's fruitless, unsung, the thaw began last week, and I can say with certainty today, it is spring. I cannot say what I'd say to her today if she rose out of bed, head shorn, bone stemmed, and acknowledged me. Would acknowledgement be her immensity or mine? It's work to gather the seasons, to ask a question that finds the feeling at the troubled core of thought. Tonight I feel small and not immense. Spring is dark like winter, dark like children who've all summer traced miles of asphalt with bare feet, bare arms, bare insolent sun. Again, I haven't traveled far enough. Spring is a stark garden, is rude and weary, a sole crocus, is grass, raw tonight, too soon done. Um, um, takes this title from a much admired woman artist, Patsy Cline um, but it's not about Patsy Cline so much as um, the the great swelling of emotion I feel whenever I listen to Patsy Cline. Um, I guess it's also kind of about Patsy Cline in that um, it's about love and how much it sucks. <laughs> um, no, it's great, looks great. <laughs> <laughs> Patsy Klein. She's in the desert, releasing the ashes of her father, the ashes of her child, or the ashes of the world. She is not what she observes, the rare spiny star. It does not belong to her. Bright needle threading a cloud through the sky. There's sun enough, there's afterlife. Her own body, a pillar of ash. I fall to pieces, she says. Faithless nimbus, faithless thought. In my life, I have lost two men. One by death, inevitable. One by error, a waste. He wept from a northern state, hunger too cold for human knowledge. Once I was a woman with nothing to say. Never did I say ash to ash. Never has a desert woken me up. I said, who releases whom? Inevitably, all have known what the desert knows. No one will count the Lupin when I'm gone. No one looks to the sun for meaning. For meat, I've done so much less. Cattle in the far basin, sagebrush, I live in a city where I loved that man, the ash of him, the self's argument. Now and then I think of his weeping, how my body betrays me. I am not done with releasing. So years ago I lived in Ohio, which is not where I'm from. And um, uh, the first couple months I was there, I celebrated my birthday and the day of my birthday, I turned on my computer and someone had released wild animals into the Ohio highway system Um, and um, there are very lax laws about exotic animals in Ohio and this man had released about three dozen t- Bengal tigers and leopards and um, all kinds of creatures, and it stopped. It, schools were closed. There were signs all over the highway that said, caution exotic animals. And I was already feeling very strange about living in Ohio. Um,
3: <laughs>
0: so I wrote this poem for myself on that occasion. <laughs> um, freedom in Ohio on my birthday. I want a future making hammocks out of figs and accidents, or a future quieter than snow. The leopards stake out the backyard and will flee at noon. My terror is not secret but necessary as the wild must be, as sandhill cranes must thread the meadow yet again. Thus autumn cautions the cold, and the wild never want to be wild. So what to do about the thrum of my thinking, the dangerous pawing at the door? Yesterday has no harmony with today. I bought a wool blanket now shredded in the yard. I abided by dwelling, thought nothing of now. And now I'm leopard and crane, all's fled. This is the last poem. Um, it's just a poem. <laughs> it's called Inside Voice. Everyone is screaming inside It's a thought I've held dear my whole life. I picture holes opening up inside and outside myself, the mouth of the earth opening, cloudless holes in the sky. Oh, that I cannot scream, my head empties, stomach gone, a soul lung vacating the body, the gulf of me, newly voided. A child has a small voice, I tell my son, as our chorus teacher told me decades ago. And it is not true. He screams down every aisle of Petco. Zebra finch, parakeet, angelfish, mollies. He's such a scream. Parenting, such a scream. Use your inside voice, I calmly advise. Calmly chasing him. Calm as the books advise. Calm being we want him to become. One of the very calm citizenry. I sing my ditty past buckets of litter. Clumping and dust free use it or lose it as if his voice could simply drop to the floor as if i'd snatch it from his throat use it or lose it one says of resources natural and otherwise my bargain with the planet this corner of petco where the words please don't hit me sputter out of a girl's mouth to a man her father or just a man whose fists perch on the ledge of his belt hawk-like Relentless, his voice swooping down to her, a dangerous pitch. I can only hear punctured consonants, a voice inside and yet too far outside. My eyes catch my son by the cats, each king to a plain plastic box, the calico pacing a brief perimeter, the golden tabby's muzzle learning my son's invading paw. Be gentle, I should say, but my voice makes a poor cage. There is the man and the girl. There is the store clerk, a teenage boy pushing a cart of automatic feeders. There is the corn snake, the Dalmatian rat, the long-tailed lizard, past, present, and future selves. And yes, there are the cats, unwanted, wanting a sunspot all their own. What we know as home, the cats will colonize, stretch their gaze to stake territories, another arbitrary boundary. What we know as home is speculation, the other person who may or may not love you back, depending on the weather, whether the mortgage is paid, the softness of today's boiled egg. I want to scream. I want the girl to scream. Look away. The cats will not stop the screaming inside our heads. How do I protect them from my son's rough reach? His voice fills cages with bright admonishing, accusing the cats of what they can't help but be. Cat, cat, cat. I am the cat's, the cat is mine. His voice too loud to not stand as authority. Use it or lose it, I'm fuzzy on the antecedent now. His voice, my authority, the cat's The girl. It is Sunday, quarter to ten. In my bag, here's inventory: the blankie, the house keys, two stale knots of bread. Who am I to call myself human?
3: Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer, the, all, the poems are incredible, but then your end line's just like, <laughs> Thank you. Um, so next we're going to have Jenny Johnson. How am I with the mic? Okay. Um, Jenny Johnson is the author of In Full Velvet, Sarah Band Books 2017. Um, her honors include the 2015 Whiting Award and the 2016-2017 Potter Fellowship at Princeton University. Her poems have appeared in the New York Times, Woman of Resistance, Poems for a New Feminism, New England Review, and elsewhere. She teaches at the University of Pittsburgh and at the Rainier Writing Workshops MFA program. And so, even as a library staff member, I discover authors like everyone else through the displays my coworkers create. Um, And last year, I encountered in full velvet when I was browsing the humanities department. Um, So I saw the cover, and as a book design lover, I had to check it out. And I was so impressed with the poems. Um, So I'm glad you're here today. The poems, and I'm very excited to hear everything out loud. The poems glisten full of desire while recognizing that the world can be clear and different. They summon influence from Larry Levis. Um, to facts from the book, Biological Exuberance, Animal Homosexuality and Natural Diversity. As she writes, in new skin, come back again and again. Own this acreage, this new ground rippling under rolled sleeves. Please welcome Jenny Johnson.
1: Thank you, Tracy, and thank you, Shailene. Can people hear me? Kind of, sort of. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? You're good. Okay. I'm a bit of a projector, so I think you'll be able to hear me. Um, I grew up in Winchester, Virginia, uh, which is actually the home of Patsy Cline. So it's nice to hear the Patsy Cline poem tonight. And when I was uh, uh, when I was trying to find a way to express myself um, as a young person. One of the things I would do is I would call up the, the late-night uh, radio station and dedicate songs to my crush over the Q102 country music radio station. So this is a poem about that. Late Bloom. The name of the spotted apple on the leafy floor in the woods... Outside the white-walled bedroom, where the FM stereo was always tuned to the same country station my girl crush loved, was gall, name for an outgrowth, a shell withering under leaf rot, near a spot where the surprise lilies might remember, might forget to bloom. Touch a weevil and it will fall, legs and antennae tucked, blink, and the arctic fox becomes snow. The gecko, toes spread wide on a tree trunk, passes for lichen. Of all the ways a creature can conceal itself, I must have relied on denial. There were the Confederate bumper stickers, pressures from seniors to tailgate, the spindly legs of a freshman scissoring out of a trash can. How just the smell of Old Spice could make my muscles contract like a moth, wings folded, the color of a dead leaf in October. So that she might hear her favorite song, my voice would drop. And if the DJ answered, I would be Tim, Charlie, Luke, Jason. Every name but my own, truer than gold. Wasn't I the stripe in a tiger's eye, the dapple in the flanks of an Appaloosa, In daylight, how could I possibly explain a heart hunting after a body? This next one's set in a karaoke bar. Um, And um, there's some lines towards the end from a Joan Jett song you might recognize. You kind of think about like your worst experience of karaoke when you know it's not going well. I was kind of in my mind writing this poem. Victory. Your mouth is stretched panther-wide in the last good photo taken of you. The creases in your forehead, symptomatic of some form of inscrutable effort. You're on a stage, in a bar, singing a song you can't remember. Insides burning, with inflammatory denial. You can't believe love left you, and yet you do happy better than any drag you've seen in weeks, gleaming like a gem on Liberace's finger, shameless in the wan karaoke light. Regardless of how you feel inside, Diane Arbus said, always try to look like a winner. It seems to you there are infinite medals, and behind the medals, no other world. No landing like Mary Lou Retton, arms flung back in a USA leotard after perfect executions on the floor mat. If only you could be that headstrong as you sprint toward the mic. Here, on a hollow stage, your fingers skim the frets of an air guitar. Once, a friend warned, every relationship is a dress rehearsal for the next. What are you wearing? dogged smile a jersey at the end of a dirty match too blinded by the strobe and the dive bar to register the blur of your teammates faces your figure is a cold ornament embossed with leaves are they fearful or joyous as they point and sing do you want to touch me there where there yeah touch your skull Mountain, mounted antlers of a red stag the first meaning of trophy, a tree made of someone else's armor, spears quivers, flags stolen breastplate a monument to pieces and I too have to, I'm so excited to be reading with Jen because this book uh, she, I mean that poem in particular, I, I mean there's a lot of poems in here when I think, I'm like oh I'm glad she helped me figure out how to fix that poem. <laughs> so, such a pleasure. And I thought I would read my one Charlottesville poem that's in here. Um, what is it? Sorry, I decided this. Up. Oh, yeah. Called There Are New Worlds. There are new worlds. To ride a horse is holy, like how Stephen, refusing to ride side-saddle in the well of loneliness, fully astride, rides high on the acrid sweat of leather. On the overleaf of my worn copy, there by the pond next to Stephen, isolated on a stone, is a swan. I first kissed a woman after hours of silence and shared cherry chapstick late at night on a bench in a garden that was so historical, Thomas Jefferson must have sat there too, cross-legged in his wig. Or Gertrude Stein, I hope, legs straddled wide on a speaking tour, explaining, a rose is a rose is a rose. I strode home alone, cutting through the icy November chill like a signet paddling suddenly in a fresh, dark lake. So um, There's different threads running through this book, but one thing I think a lot about in this collection is ways that, um, ways that uh, people can feel because of their gender or their sexual orientation or their identity, ways that you can feel regulated or unsafe um, depending on the spaces that you're in. And... Um, So I'm going to read a poem. I'm going to read two poems that are kind of about space. Um, And this first one is called Vigil. As I pedal down these streets, space and joy becoming one wind at our backs, striped awnings up and down main, I cycle fast, pant leg cuffed, calf streaked with grease, threading our way through locked traffic, past the canal, around Belle Isle. I glide toward the glint of light that shimmers off the reflector on her rusted 10-speed, then follow her to a spot along the james where weep trapeze across railroad tracks, where to blink might mean to lose foothold. Here she points across the river to an osprey nest, Tufts of straw jut out of a distant utility tower. Silhouettes of birds circle overhead, eyeing us, eyeing their nests. We need to tell you about the seeing that goes on between two people, around two people. Not the touching, the watchfulness. This is not just about love, though I love her as much now as then. It's that she's always looking out, if I follow the dotted lines of her gazes, she's looking out at something just out of range, a river otter surfacing beneath a boat dock, a damselfly dipping below a waterline, a wasp out a tiny hole in a hollow gall, that wasp lifting its legs. Years ago, I followed the gaze of a kid looking at me through a mirror in a public restroom, in a park in California. I knew by the duration of her looking that I was already a spot in the glass, a small detour in her life that she was building a barricade against. As she pressed her nose to the glass, each exhale fogged the pain. I knew her. I was her. I left her. I am a woman who forgets sometimes that she is a woman, so I always slip my shoes off and knock at least three times before crossing a threshold, before presuming I'm welcome here. Out the window of a speeding car, a man yells dyke, and a silence bristles between us, hot ash about to blow across a paper city. If you love someone, you must be the guardian of their solitude. Not that she ever needed me to guard her. Her biceps are firm when she folds me over in the dark. I do not know how she felt, but I keep thinking of her, screaming out to an empty street. I had been asleep when I heard a voice screaming, help, and frantic when I opened my door. I remember her shoulders and the faded towel I found before she put on my blue sweats and white t-shirt. Call 911, please, she said. When the officer arrived, I said, I found her there after the, but she said, no, that wasn't what happened. What must be valued, I'm learning, in clarity and in error, are spaces where feelings are held, Here, in a poem, and elsewhere. I'm going to read one more longer poem. Um, There's a lot of animals in my book. There's other things, but uh, I'm going to read this poem that opens the book. It's called Dappled Things. Um, And in it, I was... um, uh, I was I was talking back to Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, so if you're a Hopkins fan, you might pick up on that. But mostly, I'm just telling you because there's a couple moments in the poem when I address someone by the name of Hop, and so I'm talking talking to Hopkins. Um, and then the other thing that you need to know uh, is that um, that there's this frog that I became a little obsessed with called the gastric brooding frog, um, and it's now extinct, and the now extinct. Um, gastric female gastric brooding frog could transform her stomach into a womb, and and then the, the mother would swallow her own eggs, and after several weeks of metamorphosis, she would birth fully formed froglets out of her mouth. And you can Google this, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: and it's pretty, and it is it's, it's, it's like there's a little frog coming out of a, like a frog's mouth, and you're like, wow. Um, so. I don't know what we're gonna do in the Q and A, but if anyone's like, "How do you end a poem?" I that was I was like, just with like, blah, you know. That's like that's a that's an out. That, so so, I, you know, you'll know this poem is wrapping up when we get to the frog, because that's that's sort of how the poem goes out. So get ready for the frog, towards the end. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's all you need to know. Dappled things. Thank you, day for dappled things, for ambrosia beetles streaking skylines inside a maple, for pansies speckled as a painter's sleeve, for russet crusted sidewalks of lichen, airy springs of fiery structured fringe, for pink corpuscles making midges soon to burst out the undersides of leaves, thank you for all that still somehow counter original, spare, and strange, for the brightening swell of a honeybee's sting, for the alien markings on my girlfriend's cheek and how they form a perfect triangle. Thank you for the risen stars on the skin of an apple which I slice into fine, thin crescents, for dapple is a word derived from apple, and apple once meant any fruit at all born from a tree, lemon, fig, persimmon, thank you, road apple, finger apple, earth apple, for all that apple was before apple acquired a stigma for being forbidden, marked, dappled, shadowed, grappling, stamped, juice, controlled smudging of what twinkles unthinkably. And because I'm minion this morning to gay old music, thanks gentle hop for this thisness, for teaching attention, how to mark hard word bodies with stress, acute glyphs, blue scores, for reckoning the risks and disciplines rod between sheets of loose-leafed linen. You knew few might hear your address. Do I look hard enough to receive? I'm not moved by God, but I am moved by this to experience the largesse. What you look hard at seems to look hard at you. Oh, to be marked reciprocally. Yes, please, across, above, below, and with. I kiss my hand to male bonobos making out in public, in spite of Western science trying to explain away the glorious kink of spinner dolphins' whistle clicks, over-under rolling, belly-on-belly, clasping by the soft tips of flukes, riding dorsal rudders to the brink. I am inspired, call my girlfriend, say, won't you be my Olympic marmot? Chewing on my ear till I lift my tail. My black-billed magpie babble singing to my begging call. My lioness growl thrust rolling backs afterward, squeaky as killer whales. We could keep contact relentless before the next sequence diving deep in a reversed roll, double helix formation, splashing swagger to reveal the length of our pink organs. Or we could be lady elephants, heading down to the watering hole, gearing up to gather friends in the yard for a yipper chorus, hammerhead, stork, pile up Or love, we could pretend to be utter strangers. I, a house sparrow, and you, a cowbird, hopping over to chatter until you touch your lower bill, head bowed to my breast feathers. Our days are charged by so much nature, the succulents we carry to Alexis in a plastic bag after her surgery, a cat pawing at a mantis behind a windowpane, what we didn't wash from the lettuce, dirt that's good danger, Not pristine, not a baseline to hearken after romantically. Instead, I read that snowy cities should ready for rising heat, harder rain. Have I come to terms with dominance, what I have trammeled and fogged with my breath? Flush cut a redesigned ecology, the dead won't say how the forest was before we came, and the pheromones I bury my face in under your arms make me a hazy archeologist. I must speak of erasure when I long to be leaf whelmed, lit by fire pinks and wild sweet williams. How dare I speak of the marked when I am the diurnal creature damning the night sky with engineered lights? We've generated a realm where we can always see, never see. From an aerial view, here's my bright address, refracting, scrambling, shutting out the dark. Oh, day in the Anthropocene when I go to pull up buttercups bare-fingered so I can better reach the runners, thin-rooted trams tunneling invasively. Where's hope? Hope's a weed, obscene on my head, springing white hairs. Like an extinct frog who brought life by opening her mouth, many froglets bursting out, I brood. A quiet storm at the water's edge, a bloated cloud, all the row I've swallowed whole. I brood and brood, feeling old Hop in his final state, crying out, I am gall, I am heartburn, until I feel a blaze unknown, feel first my lungs deflate. Then, like a sharpening harp, the stomach acids start to transform. I'm breathing through my skin as an army grows in full. Will all things return if I so choose to burp in nameless forms. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Jenny. Um, So if Jen and Jenny, you come up to the Q&A table. Both those mics are on. And then I can Pass the mic around to anyone that has questions. Do you need me to break the ice? So both of you have incredible end lines. But I was wondering um, what tells you that like the line is the end? Is it in the editing process? Is it early on? Like where does that happen?
1: I know Jenna's taught a class on endings. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Well, I'll say what I try not to do when I end a poem. um, I try not to resolve the poem. I'm interested in what happens after you read the poem, what it feels like if if you're going to keep thinking or asking questions, if you're going to feel lost. Um, So sometimes I... I go in a different direction. Sometimes I I, I ask a question, uh, although I, I do that so often that I, I, I now cut myself when I ask a question. Sometimes I end early, sometimes I try to overwrite the end and resist clean a clean mm-hmm. cut, a clean break. Um, but you know, it, I don't always know, and sometimes it takes years to realize, like, sometimes I know a poem isn't working, and it takes years to realize what it's the right ending. So I have poems in this book where I just held on to them and like literally, this book took 10 years to write. So literally, like, there were some poems that I took five or six or seven years before an ending emerged. And a lot of times it was because I needed to refresh my engagement with it mm-hmm. and, and as if I'd never seen it before.
1: Yeah, I guess I would just add that I, that I yeah, I wanna keep myself surprised by my own endings. so. So similarly, if it feels too clean or like I'm trying to wrap something up or solve some question that's in the problem too easily, then I feel like I, I'm probably not ending it right. Sometimes when I don't know what to do, I rely on sound because I think that maybe sound might help me to help lead me somewhere that um, where, I, well, where I can kind of trick myself into doing something less predictable. Um, so I feel like I'm always...
0: Yeah, I think it's somewhere between... Um... Like, what you don't want to do is you don't want um, that rhyming couplet that you find in very facile <laughs> sonnets. And that, that's, like, one end of it. But then there's another end where I always think of the poem by Weldon Keyes. Um, it's a poem for my daughter, and it's a sonnet. And he describes his daughter and his love for the daughter. And then the last line of the poem is, I have no daughter, where it's so over-the-top dramatic that you could never read it again and enjoy it. Because it's all about it's all about the ending. So it's somewhere between that that cloying, overly neat yeah. rhyming couplet and that like dramatic. Like it was all a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm always stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can
1: I can say, like, who I went to while I was working on yes. this book. Um, uh, so I would say that, like, like somebody mentioned Larry Levis is a poet that I admire because he makes these, like, leaps across time and space. And he, he kind of helps me think associatively sometimes. But I would say, like, there's some poets that I read just because they make me feel braver. So, like, uh, Adrienne Rich and Audre Lorde are two people that I read just... Because I, I think I'm not being courageous enough, and so sometimes that's what I need help with. Um, but um, yeah, and yeah, and and and, or, and if I'm like oh, when I was thinking about Hopkins, I like his sound, so that he, I was kind of leaning on him for sound. So it kind of depends on the poem, but but reading is the way that I get myself unstuck a lot of times. Yeah,
0: I would I would agree, um, and and it's a great way to answer the question too. Like would I. I was stuck a lot writing this, and I wasn't sure what this book was supposed to be. Um, and certain books that took me outside of poetry and outside of my whatever my influences were really helpful. And one was a book by Mary Wollstonecraft um, and letters from Norway, Denmark, and the Scandinavian countries. And it's just a, a kind of travelogue. Um, and then letters from writers um, I read. Um, Dorothy Wordsworth's journals. Um, I read eco criticism. I looked at. I went to a lot of museums, and visual art tends to unstick me because it has a different. Even though I don't write ekphrastic poems, poems about art, I I like the the strange logic of of a, a painting. For instance, like where does a painting end and begin? And that question um, really excites me about the process of making, rather than. What what poem should I write today? And what <laughs> words matter? Like words just don't matter to me sometimes, or they they matter so much to me that I can't write. Probably with stuckness. It's...
1: Yeah, and outside of like I was I was reading this this book called Biological Exumerates, So I was reading yeah. some some like like nature books. Like I, I kind of just try to um, trust my weird obsessions. Um, you know, like I said, I like kind of got really interested in the gastric brooding frog and I didn't know sometimes I don't know that things are going to lead to anything so I just I just kind of keep track of them cuz and then sometimes they resurface and I'm like oh I that could be the end of the poem like yeah. so so I it's but but so much of writing for me that's sometimes tricky is trusting um the poems like strange authority cuz sometimes the poem sometimes I think poems are I often think my poems are smarter than I am and that like the way I'm whatever I'm trying to do to it sometimes gets in the way of the thing yeah. that it might become if I um, I don't know if that makes sense but the so 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 that takes patience too and sometimes waiting till the poem kind of unlocks
0: itself yeah I, I I think that I remember calling you while you were stuck or I don't know if you were <laughs> stuck but you'd be like did you know that these animals were gay <laughs> <laughs> um and so conversations is also a great way to get in too yeah um yeah. And, and and looking um it just if you're stuck just let yourself be stuck and it usually means that you're you should re-engage with the world in a different way um because if you're telling yourself you gotta write a poem um that feels like homework and no one wants to <laughs> do homework <Okay. laughs> yeah
1: mm-hmm. um I'm also, I just started reading Dorothy Wordsworth's journals.
0: Oh, great. And
1: uh, Yeah, I mean, there are just, like, like some of the entries are just names of flowers that she's seen that day and listing them. And uh, as I was listening to to both of you, I was wondering, do you make a, I mean, this is just mostly out of self-serving reasons that I asked, but do you make a point of kind of paying attention to the world and, and, and remembering these names and recording them? or, I mean, how do you, yeah, how do you know all of those names of the animals and flowers and things, yeah? Well, I garden, and so one of the things that I was doing while I was writing that longer poem is I was planning a lot of stuff, and I was, like, learning the names of it, and I was kind of, like, just really enjoying doing that, and then I was, like, I guess that's okay to just throw that in a poem. Mm -hmm. Um... And I guess I also feel like whatever I'm writing about, I could say tree or I could say flower, but wild sweet william is so was like more interesting to me, you know? So and um and the and and then even like when you get into plants, like they have so many different names. I mean, there's like the Latinate name and it's like who named this? Like what did um like different cultures that are naming different plants and so so then that's kind of interesting too to think about. So I think that I, I do I do find that even if it's just a word, I do sometimes go down a little rabbit hole of the etymology of it mm-hmm. and that helps me write as well. I'm like like I, in that dappled things I was like what where does the word dapple dappled come from and then I saw its relationship to apple and I was like whoa that's so cool um and it creates a for me it makes me feel more like a more intimate connection to the thing I'm trying to talk about um and it helps me figure out my relationship to it more so but I don't always know where it's
0: going (laughs) yeah I don't I don't know as much as Jenny does (laughs) (laughs) Um, but uh, I I think that I remember reading um, when I first was studying poetry reading poems by Robert Haas and he would just stick names of flowers and plants in and one of the first that's like exciting because like I've never seen that word before but I think it also makes you realize um, one that language is very material and it feels when you see a word like that it suddenly feels like the poem has become three-dimensional um, the other thing is just there's so much history to a word that the, there's um, I think Emerson says a word is a poem, <laughs> and, like, thinking about words as having an entire life that you can explore, whether it's a specific word like a name of a frog or a word like apple and dapple. Um, roots and numbers. Roots and numbers, <laughs> yeah, and um, I, I think what's funny, too, is like when you're writing, it's, I mean, I maybe we do collect these things, and, and I try, try to keep lists of words I like sometimes, but not with any consistency. But things just pop out of my mind. <laughs> and, and part of it, it's like you're just being... It's almost like you're being utilitarian. You're writing a poem. It's like, oh shit, I gotta fill this out somehow. I'm sorry, my son's supposed a curse. <laughs> um, I, you're, you're supposed, you just gotta fill out this line and like, wanted to stick, you know, orange seed in here or, you know, wild carrot root and and see what happens. So I think some of that is just the process of making invites random innovation or, you know, you don't have to make sense. <laughs> Yes. I, I have a question for each
1: each of you, Jenny. First, when you were writing dapple things, yes. you said that you were
3: leaning on Hawkins for the rhythm. Did, am I understanding that you were leaning
1: against that sprung rhythm, or were you trying to lean into it? it That's a great question. I memorized him. You did. Yeah, I memorized the, the wind the wind hover. Poem. I caught this morning. Morning's minion. Kingdom of the daylight. Dauphin. And, and and so that was like a way I tried to internalize his rhythm. And then I, I, I spent a long time looking at sprung rhythm. And I thought, I don't I don't know how like th- like I just felt like so much of his like his like I read that like the way that he even um, uh, scanned a line. It, it started to feel like it was a little bit personal, like how he was hearing it. And so then I thought, okay, I think it's I think I've spent enough time with him, and now I gotta trust myself. And because um, I also I wasn't trying to, I was I wasn't trying to exactly imitate him. I wanted to talk back to him. I wanted to be in conversation with him. So I so the, the one thing I did do also in leaning is I used his rhyme scheme. So I felt like that was something I could um, I could I could replicate. And so um, so that poem is in curtailed sonnets. They're all eleven lines, and they have this rhyme scheme and that that constraint led me to put like word juxtapositions together that I wouldn't normally do and and then the other thing I think I did is I just feel like he's really alliterative and and that it's I, he gave me permission to be indulgent like I felt like I feel like when I read Hopkins like he just go, like he like something that I would be like that's too much my old self like but when I was writing that poem I was like well why like if I'm writing a poem you're writing a poem that's like an ode or an elegy and you're and you're really spending time in an extreme emotion like why not kind of dig in so those were some of the things I was thinking about in responding to him was it was fun yeah
0: <laughs> Um, Well, there's a really great essay by James Langenbach called The End of the Line, and it talks about two different kinds of line breaks. Um, One he calls parsing, where line breaks are following a kind of grammar that they might end in a comma or they might end in a natural clause. Um, And then there's another line break called annotative line breaks, where however you break the line creates a different sense. So a sense that's taken outside of the sentence and it exists in, entire and separate from the meaning of the sentence. So that, that that's one thing I think about when I think about line breaks. I think about the parsing line break and the annotative line break. But there's also the visual effect of it. Um, there's form. Um, like if you're working in a sonnet, um, one of the poems that I read, the longish poem about the friendship, um, it was an attempt at writing the sapphic stanza. Which, um, is a, it was a, an assignment I'd gotten in college many, many years ago, and I could not get it right. And I started the poem as an exercise to try to get it right, and I still didn't get it right, but it helped me shape the lines of quatrain, and it has, um, I, I can't even remember, I'm, I'm not... It's it's not but it has a shorter fourth. Mm-hmm. the fourth line is very short. And what you're trying to attempt is this like funny moment in each line, the first three lines are called the coriam. <laughs> Do you know about the I uh, yeah, but, but keep going. <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to fill in. Yeah, it's it's like a um it's it's like a tetrameter line yeah. and then and then a the dimeter line at the very end and in the middle of the tetrameter line is like a hard, soft, soft heart. So that's like um like a troche and an I am side by side. And it's very, it's supposed to be very, um, like a flutter of doves, oh. is, is what I, I learned. I could not get it right. I still couldn't get it right. But it helped me shape the lines. And that's, that's one way to shape a line break. But, you know, I, I'm glad it feels like I'm talking to you. Because I, I wanted the poems to f- express an intimacy. Um, but you are
1: counting syllables
0: then? I'm not counting syllables. You're not. Okay. I mean, I think I started out I thinking about the I meter. Understand maybe in, in a draft form, what first generated the poem. And I don't work in form. That That's an anomaly for my process. Um, I think I'm thinking about, above all, like what kind of sense is the line making versus what the sentence is making versus the stanza. And these are all different kinds of tensions where what a line might show might betray what the speaker is actually claiming. So there's competing senses. And the speaker's in... My poems are not always self-aware, or they're, they're full of denial. Um, and so I wanted, that that determines the kind of dramatic effect in this. In this but also, I want it to be natural. Um, and I don't know. It, so it's, I, I think about a lot of things. Um, and I think some of the naturalness of the, the diction is just word choice.
3: Thank you both. Um, Thank you. So, after he- hearing all that, we'd love to hear another poem or oh. two from each of you. Okay. And of course, I also want to remind everyone that So Stay the Lark and In Full Velvet um, are both here, so you should pick them up and support both the poets. Okay. I'm going to do
2: one. Okay, I'm just going to
0: do one. So, I'm going to read a poem about summer. Again, a solstice. It is not good to think of everything as a mistake. I asked for bacon in my sandwich, and then I asked for more. Mistake. I told you the truth about my scar. I did not use a knife. I lied about what he did to my faith in loneliness, both mistakes. That there was always a you, mistake. (laughs) Faith in loneliness, my mother proclaimed, is faith in self, my instinct, a poor Polaris. Not a mistake is the blue boredom of a summer lake. Oh, mud, sun, and algae. We swim in glittering murk. I tread, you tread. There are children testing the deep end, shriek and stroke, the lifeguard perilously close to diving. I tried diving once. I dove like a brick. It was a mistake to ask the $30 profit for a $20 prophecy. A mistake to believe. I was young and broke, I swam in a stolen reservoir then, not even a lake. Her prophecy for my vagrant exertion, I'll die at 42. Our dog totters across the lake, kicks the ripple. I tread, you tread. What does it even mean to write a poem? It means today I'm correcting my mistakes. It means I don't want to be lonely. turn 42.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to close with a poem that's uh, set in a dike bar in outer space, or a dive bar, you, you know, pick, but if you could kind of picture your favorite if, there, if there's a, if you have a such a place you could imagine it and then think of it in outer space. This is called In the Dream. In the dream, I was alone in a dike bar we'd traversed before. Or maybe it was, in a way, all our dives merging together suddenly as one intergalactic composite, one glitter-spritzed black hole, one cue-stick burnished down to a soft blue nub. Picture an open cluster of stars managing to forever stabilize in space without a landlord scheming to shut the place down. Anyways, I was searching for someone there who we hadn't seen in years, and what could have been sisters, babes, the Lex, the pint, the palms, or the E room. The room had no end and no ceiling. Though I could see all of our friends or exes with elbows up or fingers interlocked on tabletop, zinging with boomerangs. Maybe the tables were spinning too. I can't be sure. But just as a trap that trips before hammering a mouse is not humane, the dream changed. Or the alarm that I carry in my breast pocket in my waking life was sounding. Because in the dream, three people on bar stools, who were strayed or closeted, but more importantly, angry, turned. And the room dwindled like a sweater full of moths eating holes through wool. Or they were humans, sure but not here to love, with jawlines set to throw epithets like darts that might stick or nick or flutter past as erratically as they were fired. You could say their hostility was a swirl, nebulous as gas and dust, diffuse as the stress a body meticulously stores. Like how when I was shoved in grade school on the blacktop in my boy jeans, the teacher asked me if I had a strawberry because the wound was fresh as jam, glistening like pulp does after the skin of a fruit is peeled back clean with a knife. I was in the dream as open to the elements, yet I fired back and I didn't care who eyed me like warped metal to be pounded square. I said, do you realize where you are? And with one finger, I called our family forth, and out of the strobe lights, they came.